is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. I love talking about hope. The church is in the hope business. Uh, last week, when uh, we devoted the whole service to simply explaining the gospel of hope and then inviting anybody who wanted to make a first-time commitment of their life to following Jesus, we had 21 people at all of our campuses that stood up and said, I want to follow that man. And we were so grateful for that. I'm so grateful because I know uh, so many of you are praying and inviting and wanting people to come to know and love God. Uh, next week is Easter weekend, and we did a run-through this week. And... Um, the team has put together some really creative elements that will be a part of the Easter service. It's going to be very, very moving. Uh, we're going to offer people the opportunity to get to know Jesus. And I wanted to let you know uh, so that you can be praying and looking forward to that time next weekend. And now I want to introduce to you our speaker for this morning who's going to talk about hope. Our family has been learning a lot about hope over the last couple of years. And at the forefront of that has been our daughter, uh, Laura Kathleen Ortberg-Turner, and um, she is a writer and a communicator and a preacher. Uh, I haven't mentioned to you, I don't think, she also gave birth to our grandson, Chance, um, and Chance is actually on the premises right now. He's in the nursery, and so I've heard this message a couple of times. It's very moving, but if I get up and leave in the middle of it, it will be because I'm going to visit Chance in the nursery. Um, but Laura's going to give this message. Very a wonderful moment for me to be able to have our spiritual family at this church and uh, our immediate family kind of come together like this. And this is the last service that she'll be doing, so this is kind of the last chance for our church to welcome her. Would you give a really warm welcome right now to Laura Turner as she comes and talks to us about hope? Um, I want to start by, I guess I don't have to tell you anything about my son. In fact, sometimes I think that you guys know a little bit more about him than I do. Uh, if you stick around after the service, we're just going to play the birth video so you can like have it all. Just, I'm just kidding. We're not. I'm not going to do that to you. Um, it's really good to be in this room. This is the room where I got married. This is the room where I have spent countless Easter's and Christmases, and I don't know if you know, but sometimes if you're a pastor's kid, all the services start to blur together and you have to do something to make them a little bit different. So at Christmas every year, my siblings and I usually give my dad a word that he needs to work in to the sermon. It's a dare, and he has to accept it, and if he doesn't, we don't let him back home to celebrate Christmas with us. So if you ever hear him start to talk about anti-disestablishmentarianism in a sermon about Christmas, now you know why. <laughs> um, today is Palm Sunday. It's a funny little stopover on the journey towards Easter, and it's kind of an underappreciated holiday in the Christian year, but I think it might be one of the most important ones because today is all about what we do when our visions of the future don't match up with God's reality. As we heard in the verse earlier that Lisa read, 
On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode a donkey into town, a borrowed donkey through a processional of people who had waited their whole lives for a savior. And I love this image because there's something very undignified about the Lord riding in to greet his people on a borrowed donkey. And while the people are putting down their cloaks and laying down palm fronds, shouting Hosanna, they feel the relief of knowing that their long-awaited Savior has come to rescue them from pain and anguish, to be saved, to be delivered. And Jesus, that man on the borrowed donkey, he knows something that they don't know. He is riding towards death and destruction. And hope is not at the forefront of his mind that Palm Sunday. Jesus rode through knowing that what was ahead of him was not yet liberation, but the pathway through despair. He didn't let the people in on his secret, but he would take on their sins, just not in the way that they expected. So what do we do when our hope is different from God's reality? I preached here in Menlo a few years ago uh, during what was one of the hardest times of my life. I had just had a miscarriage at 12 weeks into a very much longed for pregnancy. And there were no answers or reassurances, only suggestions to try again. And one line from a very well-meaning doctor who told me that because I was 31, my eggs might not have been the best quality, but if I had been 18 or 19, everything might have been fine. And sometimes I want to go back and find that doctor and punch her in the face <laughs> in Christian love. <laughs> After that miscarriage, I had two more. There were three miscarriages in nine months. And for a time, I felt like the only thing that I could birth was more death. In his book, Lament for a Son, the philosopher Nicholas Woltersdorf recounts his suffering after his 25-year-old son died in a mountain climbing accident in Europe. <clears throat> I have no explanation, Woltersdorf writes. I can do nothing else than endure in the face of this deepest and most painful of mysteries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth and the resurrector of Jesus Christ. I also believe that my son's life was cut off at its prime. I cannot fit these pieces together. I am at a loss. To the most agonized question I have ever asked, I do not know the answer. I do not know why God watched him fall I do not know why God would watch me wounded. I cannot even guess. The blankets and the shoes and the baby clothes that we had bought or been given were boxed up and went into storage in a section marked future. 
and the suffering started to suffuse my daily living with darkness. And a few well-meaning friends said things to me about scar tissue and how it heals back over where the pain had been before and the tissue that grows there can do things that are stronger than you even knew before. And I think what they wanted to do was give me hope, but what they wouldn't do was sit with me in the pain. And I think that Christians are really good at making moral object lessons out of pain, but we don't want to sit with the suffering. We want to get to Easter, and we don't want Palm Sunday, and we don't want Good Friday. And when we do that, we forget that we are part of a religion whose whole point is that we all suffer. Which isn't to say that life should be miserable or full of fear, but it's to state a simple principle of reality, which is that if you live long enough, you're gonna suffer. Every human being who lives long enough to suffer will also understand the desire that we have to impose order on chaos. I'm a J on the Myers-Briggs, if you're familiar with this, and I like to plan, I like to buy a planner, I like to make lists, I like to cross things off the list. Sometimes I cross something or I write something on the list that I've already done just for the pleasure of crossing it off the list. My whole family are P's on the Myers-Briggs. My mom is a P, my dad is a P, my brothers are P's, my husband is a P, and I'm pretty sure that my son will be a P because that's just a way that God likes to torture me. And these are people who don't need a plan, people who don't need to impose order on chaos. And I think in some ways, the beauty of that way of thinking is the same as some of the best art that we see, which is that it imposes chaos on order. And this is something that I love about Woltersdorf's book because it is fragmented, like grief itself. Entries are short, nothing is longer than a few pages. It raises more questions than it answers. It is full of agony and pain. And in that way, it is like suffering itself. So why do we hope in a world as marked by suffering as ours is? I've begun to see myself in recent years after these three miscarriages, after a pregnancy that was filled daily with fear and anxiety and sickness, to come to believe that cynicism was some kind of virtue. That the only way I could move forward in life was not to hope for anything at all. Because to wall myself off from hope meant that at least maybe I wouldn't be disappointed. Maybe you have done this too. This, I think, is what Paul was talking about when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a beautiful chapter about the resurrection of Jesus, if only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because really, what kind of fool puts their hope in a man on a borrowed donkey? when the world can give us so many better answers, when we can wall ourselves off from hope, when we can take care of ourselves. 
We can imagine kindness and respect without Jesus. We can cultivate service and care without God. We can live moral and upright lives while we slowly cut ourselves off from the possibility of hope. We can be good people while we choke out belief. But what we cannot do in that case is believe in eternity. We can be moral, good, kind, service-oriented, and entirely done when our bodies give out. Our hope can last for this life alone, and then with us, it dies. Not so fast, says God, who has the last word, which is one of my least favorite things about God, as I am someone who would like very much to have the last word. God who, as Jesus, once bemoaned how quick we are to run from him when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. I think that cynicism is one of the ways that we are unwilling to be gathered to God. So most of you know, or maybe you don't if you haven't been here in a year, that my story did not end with those three miscarriages. Nearly a year ago, I gave birth to a beautiful, tiny, precious little boy named Chance. And he is wonderful. And he sleeps well, which is wonderful. And he loves to eat, and he loves the water, and his existence gives me hope. But I was reading this week an article by a man whose two-year-old daughter was struck and killed by falling bricks while she was sitting on a park bench in New York with her grandmother. Her parents ran to her in the emergency room, hoping against hope that they would see their little girl. And when they got there, the only thing that they were asked was if they would like for their daughter to be an organ donor because she was no longer alive. I have been raised secular by my parents, the author, her father, wrote, and I've never set foot in a church for more than an hour, but now I will do anything for the memory of my daughter I am learning. And that includes becoming a mystic so that I might still enjoy her company. Where's hope for someone like that? Because it is easy for me to point to chance and say, I got my happy ending. I didn't know it was coming, but here he is, and things are okay with me. But if hope is only for people who have their happy ending, then there are a lot of people in this world who are missing out on hope. If hope is only for people who have had their happy ending, then there are a lot of people in this room who are missing out on hope. Maybe you are one of them. Hope has to be reckoned with. Hope goes much deeper than what is superficial or the hallmark ways that we talk about it. Hope is the province of the desperate. Maybe, most of all, hope especially belongs to the people who are desperate. Maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
that they will know God in a special way that those who do not mourn cannot know God. Hope can come to me, yes, and easily because I have my son. I am happy. Where is hope for the woman who had 10 miscarriages and has no child? Where is hope for the man who wants so much to be married but never will? Where is hope for the couple who find themselves after many years together thinking the only thing that they can do is go their separate ways? Where is hope for the family whose father is dying? Where is hope for the people who have been hurt or marginalized by the very church that they spent their lives belonging to? There's a great book by the theologian Howard Thurman called Jesus and the Disinherited. And in it, Thurman spends a chapter talking about the nature of fear, particularly as it relates to the poor and the marginalized, people who have spent their lives afraid of violence and oppression and scarcity. And he talks in it about the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount and where Jesus navigates, and I love this quote, the fear and its twin sons of thunder, anxiety and despair. And Thurman says that in the absence of all hope, ambition dies and that the very self is weakened and corroded. But to hope is to be vulnerable. To hope is to court disappointment. What do we do with that? The philosopher Jean Vanier, who many of you might know, uh, co-founded a ministry called L'Arche. It began in Canada. It is a community in which people with disabilities live with their caretakers, and it's devoted to the idea that there is no one on the earth who is useless or has nothing to teach us. He started his career in the Canadian military. He served in the Navy in World War II and says that he felt called to something else, which is a phrase I love for its vagueness. He felt called to something else, and so he went on to do his PhD in philosophy and still something else called. And so he founded this ministry, which profoundly influenced the life and work of the theologian Henry Nouwen, who I know a lot of you will be familiar with. And he was on a podcast recently, Jean Vanier, because he is still alive, and he was talking about his work with people who many of us would see as suffering or hopeless. And the host asked him, after this work, who do you say that God is? And I was ready to hear something kind of erudite and philosophical about the nature of God. And what Vanier said, I think forever changed the way that I think about God, which is this. I am struck by how vulnerable God is. If God is love, that means that God is terribly vulnerable. Vulnerable, which in its Latin means open to being wounded. God wounded? In my self-construction of God, I had thought of him alternately as judgmental, capricious, distant, occasionally warm, loving, strange, but vulnerable. Vanier mentions the passage in Revelation where God says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. God knocks. He doesn't pound down the door. And we have to hear. 
God respects our freedom enough to knock. And so often, particularly when we are missing hope, when our minds ruminate and agitate, we cannot hear him. Toward the end of Lament for a Son, Nicholas Wolterstorff reflects on God's suffering. And it is here that I start to remember that God's suffering is what the Easter week is all about. Jesus knew suffering. Jesus, who took on human limitations, who fell as he carried the cross, who thirsted as he was dying, of course God could be wounded. Woltersdorf says this, it is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said that perhaps it meant that no one could see God's sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. Perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. I think my mistake in hope is twofold. I think that it cannot coexist with sorrow. I think that hope has to look cheerful and happy and excited, like it has lots of moral object lessons and lots of answers. And then I think that I have to gin it up myself. That if I don't feel hopeful, that if I don't create hope, given what I know, there can be none and God is not real. Today is Palm Sunday, and that means that we hope in vain. That means our ideas about God and what God will do and how God will work are wrong, and we are impatient. And the full picture of what lies ahead will be both more brutal and more glorious than anything we can imagine. But Easter, Easter is coming. And it is on Easter that we recognize that the turning toward hope that we need to do has already been done for us. That we do not need to do more, be more, achieve more, believe more, practice more, or know the outcome. All we have to do is turn our faces toward God In the early church, and still sometimes in the Orthodox tradition, those who are about to be baptized would stand facing the West, because the West is where the sun set, and the West is where the night came from. And they would be asked three times, do you renounce Satan? I do. Do you renounce Satan? I do. Do you renounce Satan? I do. And then they would turn to the East where the sun came in, where the day dawned, where the light came from. And they would be asked, where is your hope? And they would say, my hope is in Christ. I am united with him. Our turning toward hope is the small one. The larger turning toward hope has already been done. It is God's turning toward us. And from the beginning of time, God's face has been set toward us as close as our own breath. 
God created the world in a posture of orientation toward us, active, pursuing us, ready for us. He is not sitting passively, hoping that we'll come along. He's closer to us than we even know most days. To have any real kind of meaning, though, hope has to pass through death and come out on the other side. And hope, as an abstract theological concept, cannot do that. But hope as a person can. And hope as a person did. And how might that affect your life today? Is there some place in you when you hear the word vulnerable that springs to mind? Is there a place in you where you have been wounded, where you are open, where you feel raw and you'd rather not talk about it, that in this moment, you might see that place and acknowledge that place before the God of the cross, before the God who was stabbed, the God who died, the God who suffered. Might you think of bringing hope to someone else this week. I know that for me, when I was going through the time of miscarriages, the only way that I could glimpse hope a little bit was to see hope in other people or to give it to them even when I didn't feel it. Is there someone this week who might need hope or need help or need a meal or need a conversation, who might need someone to ask them a question, who might need a visit? Is there someone who you can bring hope to? even when you don't feel it yourself. Sometimes we can see hope more clearly when it isn't in our own mind, when it is in the lives of the people who we love. We have to be willing to turn, and that is all. A shift from west to east, from darkness to light, from night to morning. And we turn and we turn and we turn again until finally we return to the place in us where we have never been wounded, where God has always been with us, where there is no despair, no anxiety, and no fear. We return and we are home. You have returned. You are home. Go today and be surprised by the man on the borrowed donkey.